In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Luther's explanation of the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, begins with four amazing words. God tempts no one. If God then tempts no one, why then are we tempted? Holy Scripture gives us two answers. First of all, when God allows our faith to be tested... God doesn't tempt, but he does test. He does so in order to bring us closer to him, not farther away. A couple of examples from the Bible that we're going to hear very, very soon here. In fact, one next week, God willing, when our Lord Jesus deals with the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15. In four weeks' time, the Old Testament reading is Abraham and his attempted sacrifice of his son, Isaac. These two things are used to draw both of these people closer to the Lord. Second, temptation, not testing this time, temptation, comes from our spiritual enemies in order to lure us away from God and his ways. So why would God want to test our faith? When we hear about testing and the difference from temptation, we think of, well, maybe you don't, but I do. We think of a German word, and it's your German vocabulary word for the evening. See if you can drop this one in sometime this week in conversation. The word is schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. It's a German word that really doesn't have a succinct English translation. The closest I can give you is taking pleasure in someone else's pain. An example of schadenfreude close to your heart would be every time the Green Bay Packers beat the Chicago Bears in pro football. And then you have to listen to all of the Bears fans sound like they're singing gloom, despair, and agony on me from hee-haw. Some people I know even like to tune into Chicago Sports Talk Radio to hear the Bears fans, we'll never be any good. We'll never beat the Packers again. It's our... And Packer fans are just like, just keep laying it on. Just keep going. Just keep going. That's schadenfreude. God, it seems, when our faith is tested, it's as if he's playing schadenfreude with us. As if he's saying, now let me come down into your life and stir the little pot that is your life because I want to see you squirm. This is not so. The Apostle James writes, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So far, James. Huh. What's so joyful about our faith in God being tested? Testing produces patience. Patience in trials and temptations is a handy thing to have, especially when you're being attacked by the devil, the world, 
and your own sinful nature. Jesus was patient for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, neither eating nor drinking. And if he did, he had very little of both. At the end of these 40 days, Jesus is hungry and the devil comes looking for him. And he has at least three temptations for him. At least the three that are highlighted in Matthew chapter 4. Satan goes after the three things that easily ensnare us. Hunger, protection, and power. All these are our desires that we sometimes think God withholds from us for his pleasure and our pain. One look at our expanding waistlines shows our love for food. The Corinthians had the same problem. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both, both it and them. Just because you can eat doesn't necessarily mean you should eat. Just because Jesus can make stones become bread doesn't mean that he should, especially since Satan is the one barking out the orders. We see this in the so-called pseudepigraphal gospels that are out there. And every once in a while, one of these things rears its ugly head. A few years ago, it was the gospel of, let's see, Mary. There was a gospel of Thomas. There's a gospel of Peter. And of course, it leads people to say, oh, you Christians have been hiding all these other things from us because these gospels may have things in it that's more true than the other gospels. And it's usually around Easter time that something like this comes out. There's a gospel of Judas. I forgot about him too. So uh, there's one of these pseudepigraphal gospels, which means false. They're, they set themselves up to be a gospel, but it's not. Our Lord is uh, a young boy and he's out on the playground of life and he's playing with some friends and he he begins the sentence by saying something like hey watch this which you know is something weird is going to happen and he reaches down and picks up some clay off the ground and fashions it into a bird and he holds this clay bird in his hands and then he goes and blows on it and the bird comes to life and flies right out of his hands Mm. You Christians been hiding one of these miracles from the world, haven't you? Mm, well, you see, Jesus does not perform miracles like that in order to show off. Jesus is always performing a miracle to help someone, to show his divine nature united with his human nature, not as a show off. So, our Lord could have turned those stones into bread, but he didn't. His response to Satan's request is that from Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And how do we do this? We fast from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and, eats bread that doesn't, and eat bread that doesn't satisfy. That's how we've got this thing all backwards. And God calls us in this holy season to repent from that. Luther's small catechism teaches us to pray every morning and evening, let your holy angels be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. If only God would reveal to us how many angels are watching over you and me 
right now. It would boggle our minds. We'd think, yeah, there's probably at least one. There may be more than one. There could be a whole lot of them. You may not be able to count them. Yet we think we are abandoned by God when Satan tempts us or when God allows our faith to be tested. We ask the proper question, where are you, God? Where are those holy angels that I pray about every day? When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're not praying for temptation in order that God rescues us from being tied on the railroad tracks of life while the steam engine driven by Satan is barreling down the tracks at breakneck speed. Jesus answers our foolish thoughts and desires the same way that he answers Satan's foolish request for him to throw him off of the pinnacle of the temple. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. God calls us this season to repent of believing that he wants to lead you into temptation. The explanation to the first commandment teaches us that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And Satan claims a kingdom that does not belong to him. God created the heavens and the earth and all things in them. Satan took mankind into slavery by making Adam and Eve believe a lie, and he made it sound so true. Jesus tells the Pharisees when Satan speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. We do not pray Satan's kingdom come, or worse yet, my kingdom come. Although that probably is our favorite petition in the fake Lord's prayer of life that we'd love to pray. Jesus answers Satan's foolish request, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It's this season of Lent that reminds us that at the center of things is not me. And it's not all about me. Nor is it about Satan stage whispering into our ear what we ought to be doing all the time and saying and thinking. When we hear our Lord rebuff Satan three times under extreme duress after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, we rightly believe, I couldn't do that. I'd fold. I'd fold right away. Satan said, you can make these stones become bread. But let me tell you, I'd be rubbing those stones to see how quick they'd turn into bread. Repentance and self-denial begin with confessing, like John the Baptist in John chapter 1, I am not the Christ. I am not the prophet. I am not Elijah. I am who I am. And I know and believe who I am. I'm a sinful human being. I cannot do as God does. Who then do we look to? Martin Luther gave us the hint in the hymn of the day tonight. What might of ours cannot be done, nothing. Soon were our loss effected. But for us fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. Ask ye, who is this? Jesus Christ it is. Of Sabaoth, Lord. Now, there's another word that often gets confused by Christians. We look at this word and we think, oh, they've misspelled Sabbath. No. 
Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, Lord of the angels that are always surrounding you night and day. The same Lord of hosts that King David, when he was little boy David, talks about in front of Goliath. That's what Sabaoth means. So when this shows up in the um, Sanctus, in the communion liturgy, when we sing Lord God of Sabaoth, now you know what it is. They didn't misspell Sabbath. Of Sabaoth, Lord, and there is none other God. He holds the field forever. That's what David told Goliath. He looked this almost nine foot tall behemoth in the eye and he said, the battle is the Lord's. The battle isn't yours, Goliath. It isn't yours, Philistines. It isn't yours, Israelites. The battle is the Lord's. And he's already won. That's what Satan does not want to believe. The battle is the Lord's and he's already won it. He's won it for you. If we want to be eternally blessed by the battle of our Savior over Satan, nothing more is demanded of us than that we play the part of a believing spectator. We stand there and watch David pick out those five smooth stones from the brook and bring his slingshot to fight a warrior in full battle armor. And he doesn't wear a thing. And he says, the battle is the Lord's. And Goliath's like, yeah, right. And pretty soon Goliath doesn't have a head. The main thing we learn from our Lord's temptation is to believe that Jesus battles for us in our place, for our freedom from sin and salvation from the devil. When we know our sins and feel our sins weighing down upon us, and that's every minute of every second of every hour of every day, we look to our Savior, the champion from the branch of David, the lion from the tribe of Judah. He holds the field forever. He has conquered in the strife between death and life. When Moses comes down the mountain and sees that the Israelites have made this golden calf, he asks them, who is on the Lord's side? We're on the Lord's side. He has won the battle over sin, death, and hell for us. Our problem is we're always running away from the Lord's camp. So he's got to come back after us. Perverse and foolish, off we strayed. Pull us back. Carry us back. Probably dragging our butt prints through the sand. But we'll come back with him. He's made us his own child through water and the word. He feeds us with preaching from this pulpit and with bread and wine shown to be his true body and blood from this altar. The psalmist writes, and rightly so, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He's got you covered. Under his wings you will find refuge. And I promise you they're bigger than eagle's wings. And you're there. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.